topics that we might want to talk about. I didn't have anything in my head, but after hearing you guys and what you were saying, it did bring up some things, and one of them, and it goes along with the emptiness. And I'm really, really close with someone who suffers from severe depression, and he just feels this deep emptiness in his whole life. And he feels like the only way that he can get it fulfilled is if he finds a girlfriend. And he's 28 years old, and he's just like, I just need to be the love of my life, and I need to have kids, and he stresses about it. And it just occupies him. And I try and tell him, you just need to love yourself, and it'll all come together. The universe will just make it happen once you release that grasp that you have on it. But he's just had it for years, and it just messes with him. I have a really hard time coming up with different things to try and make him happy. One of the things that's the hardest in this world is to watch the people that are closest to us suffer. It's not your job to come up with things to make him happy. It's your job to deal with the suffering you experience in not being able to make him happy. Severe depression is no joke. He's had it his whole life. I've seen it. It started when he was a teenager, and I just I saw his spells. Yeah. And in a depression, what I remember from what I know is there's three kinds of depression. There's depression that's a bipolar depression. There's a depression which is an endogenous depression. And there's a depression which is a circumstantial depression. And I think the endogenous depression is the most difficult to treat, sort of like embedded. It can be. You can work with it. But he's the one who needs to work with it. And so, you know, one of the most challenging things is is when there's somebody that you're close to and you care about, you know, you can take a horse to water. You cannot make them drink. And to be with the agony of, of watching somebody you care about not moving in the directions that you feel would be supportive or proactive or some way shifting from the pattern that he's in. And so after a certain point, it's no longer, you don't talk about it anymore. You can hold it in your own awareness. You don't need to shut it out of your awareness. You just can hold it brightly in your awareness. But remember that the work that you need to do is your own suffering, watching him. And to forgive yourself, you can't do it for him. Because oftentimes what happens is we turn that into some kind of a loop that if only I were more loving or more capable or more skilled or more patient, if only, if only, if somehow I was better or different, then he would be able to make the right choices. See it and let it go. It is not true. Um, I was just going to say thanks for sharing about the expectations. And 
I do a pretty good job most of the time. I've learned to manage my own expectations of situations and people through this practice. Now I'm shifting to how to address other people's expectations of me. And that's challenging. And it's not my job really to teach them that. But how do you respond when someone feels that you've disappointed them or the situation isn't living up to their expectations in a loving, compassionate way? I mean, I think each of us needs to know that, you know, no matter what we do, we're not responsible for where something lands in somebody else. Okay? We're responsible for our intentions. We're responsible for our actions. But we're not responsible for where it lands in somebody else and what they do with it. Okay? So when something happens and somebody feels disappointed, you know, it's compassionate to acknowledge that they're disappointed. You know, to recognize that that's actually what they're experiencing. And it's also compassionate to acknowledge if there's been any way that you have contributed to that. Or even make some kind of reparation that you're willing to do things differently so that might not happen. But it is absolutely not your responsibility to take on what they're feeling. You're not responsible for their disappointment. You're responsible to respond to their disappointment. You know? And for each of us, this is usually quite a big thing because we're tremendously social creatures and what other people think and feel about us impacts us enormously. And the closer they are, then the more it impacts, you know. And, uh, you know, to be able to hold your own ground and know who you are and know what your needs are and to be respectful of another person's needs and being able to negotiate. You know, this is all the shifting from kind of like a a symbiotic relationship or fusion to an individuated relationship where you've got two people operating in separate orbits but overlapping with each other. That's maturity. And it's hard work to get there. So usually what happens, particularly with, well, it's not only with romances, but it certainly does happen with romances, is that people are attracted to each other and then fall in love. And the falling in love state is often a kind of emerging state a fused state. And, you know, part of the reason why it feels so wonderful is because it doesn't feel like there's two people. It feels like there's just one, you know. But then then through the challenges that come out, that shifts, and then what emerges is kind of the dynamics of having to negotiate different needs and then the expectations around all of that. And that's where, you know, the hard work begins. But that's also where there can be tremendous richness because the stuff that got activated when we were little, you know, is is the stuff that's playing out in these kind of dynamics with these people that we're close to. And so all the reasons why, you know, we can feel empty, 
you know, usually gets played out with the people that we're closest to. And the ones, the reason why we were so attracted to them often is because they have exactly the same patterning as the people who imprinted the stuff that we're dealing with. You know, it's like a kind of magic. It's like a magnet. Perfect. It's a perfect fit. You fall in love perfectly well with the one who's exactly <laughs> has all of the patterning that was the so deeply destructive for you when you were little. <laughs> you know. So the idea isn't so much to get rid of the partner, but to recognize that, you know, when you can love the bit that drives you crazy in them, then you heal the part that got disowned when you were little. And so then we start moving out of this empty, vacuous space into this alive, connected space, and the relationship shifts from one of fusion to one of individuation. You've got two people with separate needs who are negotiating their needs in a way that work for both. So what's curious to me, you know, and I haven't figured this one out completely yet, I haven't got the math formula sorted out, but meditation, you know, one of the hallmarks of meditation is letting go. And non-attachment is a feature of letting go. And one of the hallmarks of psychological health is positive attachment. We actually bond with people and trust them. Okay? Positive attachment. Where you develop positive attachments deliberately. Okay? So... And it's essential as a part of becoming a healthy whole person to do that. So the question or the curiosity, especially in the position that I'm in, you know, is how do you develop healthy attachments that support letting go? How do you support intimacy that supports letting go rather than more craving? You know, so when I dream about this community, you know, this Dhamma village, that's the essence of it. That's the core principle. Develop healthy attachments to support letting go. And to do that as a monastic, as a lay person, as a family person, as an elder person, as a child. Enough? Yeah.